Hello and welcome to another edition of Sunday Dive. I'm Katie Patrizio and today we're talking about the readings for the first Sunday in Lent, February 26, 2023. Our gospel today is the story of Jesus' temptation in the desert. There in the wilderness, he submits to a threefold enticement corresponding to that from the Garden of Eden, one which also mirrors the threefold concupiscence in 1 John 2.16. We'll discuss the nature of Satan's temptations and the means by which their promises sought to entice Christ. Finally, we'll compare our Lord's ordeal to the fall of Israel in the desert and the fall of Solomon upon the throne. When seen through the lens of Old Testament texts, we find Christ as new Adam, new Israel, and new son of David. Welcome back to Sunday Dive and welcome to Lent. Most people's, some people's, everybody's, I don't know, favorite time of the year. I don't know. I don't know where you're at with it. With Lent. Always comes faster than I expect. I'm still I'm still getting off the Christmas season and somehow it's Lent. So today we are in Matthew chapter 4 verses 1 through 11. The church sets us up for the Lenten season with the uh, account in Matthew's gospel of our Lord's temptation in the desert. And unsurprisingly, there's some fascinating things going on here in Matthew chapter four, verses one through 11, and tons of parallels with none other than the Old Testament. So we've got a fun episode ahead of us and we'll begin our time together as we always do reading. I'm at Matthew, again, Matthew four, one through 11, reading from the Revised Standard Version Catholic Edition. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And he fasted 40 days and 40 nights. And afterward, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. He will give his angels charge of you and on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him again, it is written, you shall not tempt the Lord, your God. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and ministered to him. All right, so I'm going to take us deep into the Old Testament, but before we go into the Old Testament, we're going to fast forward, if you will, in Scripture to the epistles, the Catholic epistles. At 1 John 2.16, we read, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. First John 2.16. This classification of worldliness, essentially of sin, is called by 
theologians, the threefold concupiscence. Okay, concupiscence is just a fancy word for a tendency towards sin. And the threefold concupiscence are, is these, these three things listed by John. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life. So what John is telling us and what theologians flesh out is that essentially all sin that is in the world, all worldliness, can be boiled down to three types of, of, of failures, of sins. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life. In fact, you can even call them like three kinds of temptations, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life. So we're going to take this threefold concupiscence that we find at 1 John 2.16, and we're going to use that as like our lens of looking through scripture. So we're almost going to like put on goggles or uh, take up binoculars, if you will, put them up to our eyes, and we're going to scan through the Old Testament. And uh, it's like, I don't know, like 3D glasses or something. When when we see the threefold concupiscence or when we get to the threefold concupiscence in scripture, it's going to pop out for us, right? <laughs> and the first place that we have that in the Old Testament is unsurprisingly at the very beginning, the very first sin, the fall of Adam and Eve, which significantly is our first reading. And in our first reading, we have a description of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And uh, the description of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is threefold. So we are told at uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, that the woman saw that the tree was good for food that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. And for this reason, we're told she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband and he ate. So this threefold description of the tree and the fruit of the tree, good for food, a delight to the eyes and desirable to make one wise. Do those correspond with the threefold concupiscence? In fact, they do. Lust of the flesh, good for food. Lust of the eyes, um, a delight to the eyes. And pride of life, desirable to make one wise. Interesting. Now, I'm going to actually fast forward to our gospel reading. I'm going to comb through that. We're going to comb through that with this these, these binoculars, these goggles of the threefold concupiscence, we're going to pick out the corresponding aspects. And then we're going to, again, jump back to the Old Testament to Exodus and the first book of Kings. And we're going to pick out two more places where we find the threefold concupiscence. And uh, as, a, as a bit of a teaser for where we're going with this, what we're going to discover is that our Lord is going to undo all of the falls, all of the sins, the major sins that we have in Scripture, in the Old Testament in particular. He's going to undo all of them in his, old, in his own threefold temptation, okay? So let's comb through, let's jump ahead to, to our gospel, to Matthew 4, 1 through 11, and comb through the threefold temptation of our Lord. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness 
to be tempted by the devil. First of all, this is this is directly after his baptism. We're going to come back to the significance of that. Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. When you hear wilderness in the scriptures, read desert. Okay, that's what that means. So Jesus is led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. And while he's in the desert, he's fasting. And he's fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And I love that Matthew tells us that afterward he was hungry. (laughs) Just in case you were wondering, our Lord was hungry. It probably actually is an important like point to put in there because if Matthew didn't say that, we could be like, well, he was, he's the God man. Like maybe he doesn't get hungry. Maybe Jesus doesn't get hungry. So even though it's kind of funny, it's probably actually helpful that Matthew says afterward he was hungry. And then what happens? The devil here, what Matthew, who Matthew calls the tempter comes to him and says to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And Jesus answers, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. There's kind of two aspects I would say to this temptation. One is is the most obvious aspect. Our Lord is hungry. Bread probably sounds really great right now. And in the Judean desert, there are lots of rocks. (laughs) So lots of opportunities if our Lord, our Lord um, entertains the suggestions of the devil, lots of opportunities to turn stones into bread. Um, but our Lord does not do that, all right? He does not give in to the lust of the flesh, all right? He tempers his flesh. He tempers his passions. He tempers his hungers and his, his um, fleshly desires, Okay, but there's another aspect or layer going on here, which is interesting. And to get at it, we have to carefully read the temptation of the devil. If you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. What is Satan subtly proposing to Jesus here? He's he's subtly tempting him to... um, not just satisfy his hunger, but to inflate his ego, right? The devil is in a way insinuating like, are you really the son of God? Because if you're the son of God, let's see you do something. Come in these stones to become loaves of bread. But our Lord does not do that. He, um, his powers, his divine powers are not at the service of his human comfort. They're not at the service of his own selfish gain. Now, this is one of the ways in which uh, the church is, uh, is able to see in some of the apocryphal gospels inconsistencies that betray the fact that these apocryphal gospels are not inspired by the Holy Spirit. What do I mean by that? Well, in some of the apocryphal gospels, we see, Um, The child Jesus, for example, doing miracles to like entertain himself. This is not in keeping with the way our Lord actually acted when he was on earth. He doesn't use his divine powers for his own amusement and for his own satisfaction. He completely, uh, he completely puts his, his divinity and his power at the service of us 
and at the service of love and at the service of the Father, okay? Interestingly enough, there's going to be another time where we hear similar words to what the devil says. What does the devil say? If you are the son of man or the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. If we go to um, Calvary, what do we hear the crowds jeering? If you are the son of God, um, come down from the cross, like use your divine power to come down from the cross. Of course, Jesus is the son of God, but is he going to do that? No because he completely abases himself in total humility. So not only does our Lord resist the temptation to satisfy his hunger, but he resists the temptation to inflate his ego. And he places his divine powers at the service of love and at the service of the will of the Father, okay? Let's look at our Lord's response to Satan's temptation. What does he say? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. There's again, like, like so much of scripture, many layers of meaning that we can peel off here. First of all, our Lord is, is saying that physical life, mere physical life is not the entirety of life. What, what is physical life? If we are living in spiritual death, right? What, what, is, what is physical life if we are living in spiritual death? So our Lord is concerned not merely with physical sustenance, but with spiritual sustenance, all right? And if you're a Jew reading this and you hear, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, what is the word that proceeds from the mouth of God for a Jew? The word that proceeds from the mouth of God for a Jew is Torah. It's the law. And so our Lord in many ways is saying, it's not bread alone that keeps you alive, but the law keeps you alive. And I love this because this fills out our understanding of the moral law, okay? Because often we approach the moral law and ethical living ethics, thou shalt not, as like these fences that just prevent us from doing things. But in reality, the moral law has a much greater depth and richness to it. So the moral law is the creator telling us what it means to be alive. The creator telling us what it means to be alive. And I'm going to get mildly philosophical here for a hot second. To, to, to drive this point home. So in philosophy, philosophers will talk about telos, which is a fancy Greek word that essentially means end or purpose, okay? And philosophers will philosophize, <laughs> obviously, about how an object's telos, an object's end or purpose is given to it by its creator. So this is this is why so often um, when <laughs> when um, you know a, a little child comes to you with a with a creation and you're not really sure what it is, you're like, oh wow, that's beautiful. What is it? <laughs> because you need the creator to tell you what it is, right? Think of a, 
think of um, uh, a different example, one less quote unquote childish, I, I suppose you could say. Um, you are uh, you are living in the early 1900s and you're in Dayton, Ohio at a cycle shop run by Wilbur and Orville Wright. And you notice that in the back of the cycle shop, they're tinkering with this object. And you're not quite sure what it is because it's only the early 1900s and no one has ever invented an airplane before. Who is going to tell you what that object is and what its purpose is? The creators, Wilbur and Orville Wright. And they're the only ones that can tell you when that object is fulfilling its purpose. When they try to fly it and it takes an immediate nosedive into the ground and shatters into pieces, they can tell you, no, that was a failure. It didn't fulfill its end. But when at Kitty Hawk, on that fateful day, when the right flyer actually sustains lift for the first time, then Wilbur and Orville can tell you that right flyer, that first airplane actually accomplished what it was built to do. Okay. So all this to say, to drive home this idea that the moral law as that which tells us what it means to be alive is, is that thing that tells us our end and our purpose and whether or not we are fulfilling our end or our purpose. In other words, whether or not we are fully alive, okay? To be a Christian, to be good, to be ethical, to be moral simply means to be fully alive. That's what it means. And so all this, 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 this quote, quotation that our Lord brings up, because it's actually a quotation from the Old Testament. We'll get to that in a second. But this quotation that the Lord brings up Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It's just full of this, this, these, these beautiful ideas of, of what it means to be a Christian and what it means to be alive. And only the creator, only the creator can tell you if you are fully alive, if you are fulfilling your end. And so once we, this is why things get really confusing for humanity when we try to live without our creator and without his, his purpose for us in mind for our lives. The second temptation, the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. He will give his angels charge of you and on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. All right, so um, Jesus is taken to the holy city. If you're a Jew, you immediately know what the holy city is. The holy city is Jerusalem. And he's set on the pinnacle of the temple. Scholars go back and forth on what section of the temple is the pinnacle of the temple. And they usually vacillate between the southwest corner of the temple and the southeast corner of the temple. So the southwest corner of the temple is the highest pinnacle or the the highest kind of corner of the temple because right below it is the Kidron Valley. So there's this, this 
this steep drop off. And so the southeast corner is is certainly higher than the southwest corner. And so some some scholars will argue, well, surely that's that's the pinnacle of the temple that Satan took Jesus to. Other scholars will argue that it's the southwest corner. Now, the southwest corner is still very high, several stories high. The temple was massive. Um, some people said that the city of Jerusalem was not a city with a temple, but rather a temple with a city built around it. It was the, the Temple Mount was several um, football fields um, in in length and width. Okay, very, very big structure. And I should say that because it was so big, they had to. Um, when, when Herod the Great expanded the temple, he had to move tons of dirt to expand the area of the Temple Mount because it was just kind of like a, a small mountain, a small hill. So he had to bring in tons of dirt and then create, build giant retaining walls. And so the the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall in Jerusalem is actually just one of those retaining walls. Um. And if you're if you're if you're looking at an image of the Wailing Wall of the Western Wall, um, if you were to look all the way to the right side, as far as as far as the remains of the temple and the remains of those those retaining walls go, all the way to the right side, that would be the southwest corner of the temple. Okay, so it's not as high of a drop off as the southeast corner, but scholars, some scholars will argue that Jesus was taken by Satan to the southwest corner because below the southwest corner was a marketplace at the time of our Lord. And also from the southwest corner, you could view most of the city of Jerusalem. On the southeast corner, um, you you mostly have a view of the Mount of Olives because uh, the Kidron Valley is a drop off there and you would be able to see the south kind of side of the city of Jerusalem which if you're if you're on the southeast corner, you can see most of the city of Jerusalem. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> so the the significance here being and the, the argument being that what Satan is tempting Jesus to do is to to, to draw attention to himself, essentially. Um this would not so much be for the benefit of of our Lord. It's not. It's not as if Satan's tempting him to throw yourself down and like feel what it's like to skydive, <laughs> and the angels will catch you. No, it's this idea that there's there's large throngs of people around the temple. If he, if he was to throw himself down from this great height, and people were to, would to were to see him. Be, be caught by angels. It would be this magnificent sign that would prove, if you will, his identity, right? And, and, and Satan begins his temptation in that similar way, if you are the son of God, okay? Now, turning stones to bread is a clear parallel with lust of the flesh, right? Because we wanted to look at Matthew 4 through the lens of 1 John 2.16. How is this temptation to throw himself down from the temple um, congruent with the second of the concupiscences, um, the lust of the eyes? Well, as my 
scripture professors would categorize it, what Satan is tempting Jesus to do is to make of himself a spectacle, okay? To make of himself a spectacle. We're going to dive into that a little bit more here in a second. But before we do, and before we move even farther along, I just want to note that every time our Lord responds to the temptations of the devil, he uses scripture. So his first response to the first temptation, he quotes Deuteronomy 8.3. His second response to the second temptation, our Lord quotes Deuteronomy 6.16. And we should also note that in the second temptation, Satan himself quotes scripture. When he says, he will give his angels charge of you and on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. That's a quotation from Psalm 91, okay? This is really important for us to keep in mind. The devil has no problem quoting scripture. He will he will quote scripture and he will use scripture and he will twist scripture and manipulate scripture to fit his own purposes and his own desires, okay? So it <laughs> it is very possible if the devil can manipulate scripture to make his own arguments, then we humans are very, very capable of manipulating scripture for our own uh, purposes and desires, all right? So how do you prevent that from happening? How do you prevent yourself from doing that? Staying close to the church because the, the church is the mouthpiece of Jesus Christ, the mouthpiece of the Lord himself, right? He who is the word itself. And so we need to stay close to the, the church to make sure that we are not taking scripture, quoting scripture and manipulating it for our own purposes and our own, our own desires. Okay. Just a quick note there. So the second temptation corresponds to lust of the eyes insofar as um, it's a temptation for our Lord to make of himself a spectacle. And I I'm fascinated by this idea in, in particular lately because um, here in Des Moines, uh, where I am, we just this last week, the the, the bishop brought in um, a Dominican priest to preach around the diocese on the Eucharist because of the Eucharistic revival that the bishops have um, have begun here in the United States. His name was Father Samuel Hakim, and um, in his talk, he it, it was not necessarily a main point of his talk, but it really struck me. Is very timely for our discussion here today. He brought up, and I think he was quoting Dr. Timothy O'Malley from Notre Dame. He brought up that the Eucharist is a non-spectacle. He actually used that phrase, that the Eucharist is a non-spectacle. And this fascinating me, it fascinated me because of the readings that we're exploring here today that what Satan does in the second temptation is tempt Jesus to make of himself a spectacle. But our Lord refuses that temptation in his tremendous humility, right? He would rather be humble and lowly and draw people to himself through his humility and his loneliness or his lowliness, also his loneliness. <laughs> but his lowliness, we see this um, in the baby Jesus, right? at Christmas. But we also see this in our Lord in the Eucharist, right? He is so willing to be so humble 
and so quiet and so small and so almost invisible that people sometimes don't notice him, often don't notice him, right? This, this, this is precisely the reason the bishops have instituted this Eucharistic revival is because people aren't noticing Jesus Christ in the Eucharist. And yet this is something, something very much worth contemplating, especially this Lenten season. How it is that our Lord knows that it is more beneficial to radically embrace humility and hiddenness and in humility and hiddenness draw men to himself. He doesn't, he doesn't do spectacular things. He doesn't make of himself a spectacle in order to get people's attention. Rather, he gets people's attention by his humility, by this God became, become man and, and born as, as a little baby boy, by this, this, this God, man, and, and the transubstantiation of bread and wine and the, the tremendous humility and hiddenness of that. So if we, if we long from these readings, which hopefully we do, if we long from these readings to, to have an encounter with this man of tremendous humility and hiddenness, all we have to do is, is go to him in the tabernacle and see him in his, his hiddenness and his humility. Even now, even now, he refuses to be a spectacle, all right? <coughs> the third temptation. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And then we're told the devil left him and behold, angels came and ministered to him. So our Lord is tempted here. This is the most perplexing in some ways, at least in my mind, the most perplexing of the temptations. Our Lord is tempted to, um, to bow down and worship Satan. And what he shall receive in return, presumably from Satan, are all the kingdoms of the world. Our Lord refuses the temptation. Again, quotes scripture, this time quoting Deuteronomy 6, 13. And in the devil's temptation, we see kind of like the anatomy of temptation. Why do I say that? Because the devil is smart and he knows that he cannot tempt man with an outright evil. The devil always tempts man with a half good, a half good and a half truth. Because when you look at this temptation on the surface, you're like, how is there anything in this that would tempt Jesus? Jesus, who himself created the devil, Lucifer, right, before he fell. Jesus himself, who created this fallen angel, or this, this angel who, I sh who fell, I should say, right, because our Lord did not create a fallen angel. He created the angel who chose to separate himself from God. Nonetheless, this is this 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 fallen angel is Jesus's creation. 
So how in the world is this a temptation? I would argue that the temptation is in this promise, this promise for the devil to presumably give up the kingdoms of the world. So what, what is the good? What is the subtle good in this temptation? I would argue the subtle good is that the whole purpose that Jesus came, became incarnate, preached, and drew men to himself, died on the cross, is uh, the whole purpose for all of that is to, was to, is to liberate the kingdoms of the world, to take back what rightfully belonged to him that was usurped by Satan at the fall. Jesus came to liberate the kingdoms of the world. And so what Satan is tempting Jesus to is not like world domination or something like that. Rather, he's tempting him with like a, like a quick ransom. We can perhaps put ourselves in the shoes of our Lord and understand the tug on his heart if we look at it perhaps from a more personal perspective, if we imagine those scenes that unfortunately I wish they were only in movies, but we know that they occur in real life, these scenes where someone, for example, is taken hostage and they are in grave danger and they are being uh, kept under hostage and under the threat of danger for the sake of manipulating another, right? Right. And so it's almost as if uh, you can imagine Satan with a, a soul that Jesus created and loves infinitely, a soul wrapped, kind of wrapped in his arms and I don't know, like with a gun to his head and the devil telling Jesus, if you bow down and worship me, I'll give this man to you. I'll give the soul to you that, that you love. I'll give it up, give him up to you, right? Put your own name in there, you know? Bow down and worship me and I will give you Katie. Then we can see the tug on the Lord's heart, right? Then we can see the, the half good in this. What else is going on here? I said it's not a temptation to world domination, but a temptation to quick ransom. Why do I say that? Because our Lord has his plan. How is he going to defeat Satan and defeat evil? Through the cross, right? And so here Satan is also tempting Jesus to forgo his passion. And I think we get, um, we get confirmation of this when we go to a few chapters um, later in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 16. And uh, we read that... Um, Jesus began to show his disciples, this is at verse 21 of chapter 16, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him saying, God forbid, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But this is the important part. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me for you are not on the side of God but of men. How does Jesus respond to this third temptation? Be gone, Satan. Be gone, Satan. So it's this, this very similar reaction, this emphatic, intense reaction that Jesus has, because I think in both cases, when we see this clearly in Matthew 16, the temptation is to forgo the passion and Jesus refuses to be tempted to do that. 
so so Satan Satan tempts with the the true the true end in mind, if you will. This end being the liberation of the kingdoms. But um, Jesus shows us again, if we kind of bring in some moral theology, Jesus shows us that the, the ends do not justify the means. It's not, uh, it's not proper to worship a creature in order to ransom other creatures. And our Lord is, his mind is set on the cross on showing his tremendous love for us in the cross and liberating us through the cross. He, he will not be, he will not be tempted away from that. So if we, if we um, look at the, the fall of Adam and Eve through the lens of first John two sixteen. And then we look at the temptation of Jesus in Matthew 4 through the lens of 1 John 2.16. We see that our Lord is showing himself to be a new Adam. Right? He's undoing the sin in the Garden of Eden. But we're also going to rewind back to the Old Testament again to, to close out our time together and look at two other sins and see how our Lord is going to undo them. We're going to look at the sin of Israel and we're going to look at the sin of Solomon, okay? So turn with me to Exodus. First, I want to go to Exodus chapter 16, verse 3. This is six weeks after the Exodus. So six, six weeks after God in mighty works has freed the Israelites from bondage in Egypt. A mere six weeks later, we hear them saying that Exodus 16, three would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When we sat by the flesh pots and ate bread to the full for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. That is insane. That is completely insane. The Israelites are literally saying we wish that we had actually died by the hands of God in many ways. Like they're probably thinking just like the firstborn did we would rather have been, have have died by the hands of God than be hungry right now. Right? So lust of the flesh, clearly. And, and how does God respond to this? Behold, I will rain bread from heaven. God is, people always say that the God of the Old Testament is like heinously violent. I mean, there are, there are parts that are confusing, but we really, for whatever reason, overlook the tenderness of the Old Testament God as well. This is this is the tenderness of the Old Testament God. They respond in complete ingratitude and God immediately responds with, behold, I will rain bread from heaven. What? And this is the manna, right? So Israel, um, Israel sins in, in wishing death upon themselves as opposed to hunger at Exodus 16, three. So lust of the flesh. If we turn to Exodus 17, verse 7, and that, that whole section surrounding that passage, we get the complaint of thirst. Now, how does this relate to lust of the eyes? Well, if we go and read Exodus 17, 7, we're told he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the fault finding of the children of Israel and because they put the Lord to the proof by saying, is the Lord among us or not? And that word that the RSV translates proof can also be translated test, okay? 
Um, at Matthew 4, 7, Jesus responds to the temptation of lust to the eyes by saying, it is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And so though Exodus 17 is in regards to the thirst of the people, there's an implication that the people are doubting in many ways the, the power of God the proof of God and the presence of God because of their thirst. And so they're, they're tempting God to show who he is to, to again, make of himself a spectacle. Like if you don't make of yourself a spectacle, I'm not going to believe that you're real. And this is a point of reflection for us personally in our lives, because how many times do we do this? How many times do we say to God, like, I'm not going to believe you unless you really, really show me. And this is this betrays a lack of faith because we have signs of God's presence all over our lives as if as if his fingerprints are all over us, right? And so we we should take to heart Exodus 17 and examine our conscience for ways that we actually act like the Israelites in putting the Lord to the test. So we had lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and then finally we turn to the the worst sin of all contained at Exodus 33 and the golden calf incident, right? What is what what happens in the golden calf? Well, the people essentially say, who is Moses? We forgot who he is. And they they pressure Aaron into creating for themselves a golden calf, which is a, a god of the Egyptians. And they worship it, idolatry, right? Which is exactly the temptation of our Lord here in the third temptation at Matthew 4. Fall down and worship me. And interestingly enough, the quotation that that Jesus uses from the Old Testament, the, the, the Old Testament citation that he uses to respond to the devil is the prohibition against idolatry. I will also say that all three times that our Lord quotes the Old Testament, he is quoting from the book of Deuteronomy, which for the Jewish people contains the law, Okay. And this is very congruent with the, the connection that I'm trying to draw for you here because it, it precisely shows that when Israel could not keep the law, Jesus can. I'll say that again. When Israel cannot keep the law, Jesus can. And so just as we have the new Adam undoing the sin of, of the Garden of Eden, we have the new Israel undoing the sin of, of Israel in the desert. And interestingly enough, I brought up how this episode of Matthew 4 directly follows the baptism. Why is this significant? Because our Lord being baptized, particularly in the Jordan River, signifies a new exodus. Why is that? Because the the last the last crossing into the promised land was over over the Jordan River. And so when Jesus goes to the Jordan River and is baptized, he's he's uh, bringing to mind the image of the Israelites in Exodus, and he's instituting a new Exodus. And then immediately after that baptism, that institution of the new Exodus, he goes out into the desert, just as Israel did, and is tempted in these three ways. But in the three ways that Israel fell, Jesus is going to be successful in overcoming the temptation of the devil. There's one final parallel that I'd like to draw in our time together, and that is a parallel with the figure of Solomon. So if we go to 
First uh, Kings 2, verse 3, we find ourselves at the end of David's life when he is preparing to pass the throne to his son Solomon. And he gives his son Solomon simple instructions to, quote unquote, keep the law of Moses. Now, this would be a clear reference to Deuteronomy 17, verses 16 through 17, where Moses gives three laws for the future king of Israel. And these three laws are very simple. The future king of Israel shall not multiply wives. He shall not multiply gold and he shall not multiply horses. Okay. Now, Solomon takes the throne. We hear about his reign in first Kings. But unfortunately, he was a good king in many ways, but at the end of his life, he fell away. And so if we get to 1 Kings chapters 10 and 11, we read some ominous things. So at 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 14, we read that the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold, an ominous number. And then if we jump down to verse 26 of 1 Kings 10, we read, Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. And if we jump to the next chapter, 1 Kings 11, uh, verse 3, we read that Solomon had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart, which means that um, the, the text goes on to clarify that Solomon started... Um, practicing idolatry at the end of his life. So the three things that David, quoting the words of Moses, told Solomon not to do, multiply gold, horses, and wives, Solomon, we're told, does, according to 1 Kings 10 and 11. And the result of this is this idolatry, just like we find that the culmination of Jesus' threefold temptation is idolatry. What is the implication here? Again, as I keep summing it up, where Adam fell, Jesus succeeded. Where Israel fell, Jesus succeeded. And where Solomon fell, the new son of David succeeded. And again, I'll go back to our Lord's baptism just briefly here to, to, to show further continuity. So when our Lord is baptized in the Jordan River, it hearkens to this image of a new exodus but it also hearkens to an image of the coronation of King Solomon. Solomon was taken to a water source, the Gihon, where he was anointed by a priest and a prophet. Our Lord is, um, is washed, is anointed, if you will, by a priest prophet in John the Baptist. He's the prophet par excellence, and he has a priestly pedigree. And in, in, in the, the, the immediate aftermath of our Lord's baptism, the heavens are open and the voice of the father is heard. This is my beloved son. And so we have the new son, the new son of David, who has just been anointed, if you will, coronated king and takes upon himself the identity of the son of David, but where the first son of David, Solomon, fell our Lord is immediately going to enter into the desert, undergo temptation, but going to overcome that temptation. And how does our Lord overcome the temptation? What, what is different from Adam, from Israel, from Solomon, and from us when we fall? What is different? Our Lord completely relies 
upon God. He completely relies upon the Father, right? We see him refusing to use any of his own divine powers to 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 satisfy his hunger, to to draw attention to himself, even to to liberate the kingdoms of the world, which is the purpose for which he came, right? Rather, he uses um, complete humility, um, favoring hiddenness, and keeping his eyes upon the cross. These are the ways in which he's able to be successful in the face of temptation. And we need to take these, these strategies to heart as well. Complete and utter faithfulness to the will of the Father and complete and utter reliance on the Father's sustenance, all right? Because where we each go wrong in times of temptation is to subtly rely on ourselves. You'll notice that Adam and Eve, they don't cry out for God in the garden. Why is that? Have you ever noticed that? Ask yourself that question. Why didn't they cry out for God? Subtle self-reliance. This is a problem. And so in our, in our Lenten season, especially as we enter into our, our penances and perhaps find ourselves struggling in our penances, we can have a, a supernatural outlook on these struggles and see in them, see in the struggles almost more than the quote-unquote success, see in the struggles a training for utter reliance on God. And it is in utter reliance on God that we will always, we will always be successful. Thanks so much for listening. 